Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm talking with Dr. Itai Lotum about his book, The Memory of Colonialism in Britain and France, The Sins of Silence, published in 2021 as part of the Cambridge Imperial Postcolonial Studies series with Paul Grave Macmillan. Dr. Lotum is a senior lecturer in French studies at University of Westminster's School of Humanities. Dr. Lotum, Itai, if I may, uh, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you for having me. So um, before we get into the memory of colonialism in Britain and France, the sins of silence, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, how did you come to focus on the memory of empire in France and the United Kingdom? Well, so starting with a bit of ego history here. I, I, so first of all, I should probably say I am a historian or contemporary historian or, or historian of the present or whatever you want to call it, just because we are talking about things that have been going on for the last, um, for the last what, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and I think that also why I actually started working on memory has something to do also with my own trajectory and also it kind of gets into the way I kind of try to analyze things and a part of it was also actually me having studied in Ge- in Germany in Berlin for a long time and I and over there I studied history and studying history in Berlin also made also made, also meant studying memory studying um different types of memory lots of kind of memory um memory theories, memory constellations. It was mainly, of course, the memory of the Holocaust and very kind of German memory or German Eastern European memory. But by the time I actually graduated graduate in Berlin, what I started being a lot more interested in is, and, and also the thing I then wrote my master's thesis on, was um, debates in France, which is a country I'd lived in before, about um, about colonialism and these kind of political debates had only just taken place by that time, and it was interesting. And then by the time I started thinking about doing a PhD and f- ended up doing this very megalomaniac PhD that just kind of compares um, the whole of uh, the whole of kind of colonial memory in Britain and France, I have no idea why anyone allowed me to actually do it. Uh, by the time I actually got to it, I thought about expanding on these things I'd kind of touched on, but also kind of moving back to Britain, where I'm from, was also to think about this these differences between talking about colonialism, the memory of colonialism in France, but also a kind of silence about colonialism, or, or at the time, silence about colonialism in, 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 in the country I'd lived in, and also kind of realizing, or grew up in, born in, all of these things. And one of the things that really interested me when I started working on it, of course, afterwards, everything just changed like, the, like it always does with a research project. But one of the things I found, I actually started thinking about at the time was that even though I had been so exposed to empire on a very, on, on a very sort of daily level, I'd never actually talked about it, definitely not as much as what I'd seen in France before. So I thought about this as could be interesting. 
That so that's really interesting. And one of the things that I found most sort of um, eye-opening about the book is I, I, you know, as as an American who's studied history of imperialism, I sort of had the stereotype in my mind that, well, the British talk about their empire and, and remember the empire, whereas in France, there was this stereotype of the colonial amnesia, and then that comes late. But the book sort of arguing something different that since decolonization, there's actually, we'll get into this later on, but this deprioritizing of the discussion of empire in the UK in that same time period where it's, it's, it's pushing into the French public sphere. So I found this a really interesting contrast. And this was also something that I I think nobody actually thinks about. And I don't want to actually say that I'm in that in that in that sense, like this huge sort of pioneer. But one of the things that I that I also thought about was when I started working on France, um, also during my masters, is also through this idea of colonial amnesia, also thinking about, of course, the, of course the French haven't come to terms with their empire. Then of course it, I start asking the question, what does it mean to actually come to terms with your empire? But it was clear to me that, of course, the French haven't come to terms with their empire. And and everyone had this kind of assumption that, in a way, in Britain, things are better. Right. And one of no, the that, things, that, that, that's exactly what I thought. Right. And I and I also just kind of thought that things were better in Britain because why because why wouldn't they be? But when I actually started thinking about it, then of course. I realized on a very personal level, I had not actually been privy to any discussions of empire. Of course, different different sort of remarks here and there, but I've never actually seen any of them. And one of and one of the anecdotes I actually use and then kind of open my book with was what happened to me also just kind of doing oral history interviews in France. And I would interview many activists, as many, many anti-racist activists, but also historians, also politicians. And in France, every one of my interviewees actually opened the interview saying that I was lucky to be British because we have somehow come to terms with our past. And, and at first I just kind of thought, well, okay. But also one of the things I've realized about their idea of what it means to come to terms with the past is that for them, and again, this was this is something that that the book tries to touch on. For them, their understanding of Britain was 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 a society. I mean, in which race relations are less toxic than in France. Whether it's true or not, I, it's a whole different debate. But that was their perception of Britain. And for them, and especially with debates that had been going on in France, then this idea of reaching this more appeased society, as you like as you like calling it in French, needed kind of working through past the past, working through this colonial history. Whereas in a way, in Britain, this one of the things that I kind of then came to try and argue through the book was that a lot of this appeasement was actually avoiding talking about colonial history and not touching with 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 a with a 10 foot yard with a 10 foot stick. But and then of course I started also asking, so why is it like this? Because if also normatively I approached this thinking that this would be, I didn't actually know what it would be at first, but normatively it was it was clear to me that it is good to come to terms with the past. It is good and it is necessary to, um, to come to terms with colonial history, whatever that meant. And I thought of it also as something that is a very sort of basic rule of anti-racism, um, 
to actually excavate this past and to make sure that you deal with it anyway. And I think that one of the things I then kind of started asking is why do you have this very loud, acrimonious, very toxic debate in France? Why does it, even after all of these years of having this debate, it's a, you still have this kind of idea of France as a place that hasn't had this debate at all? Whereas in Britain, and then Britain also is a place that, that, that changed a lot from, from, from the time I started doing my PhD, because um, in around 2015-16, you have this kind of huge debate um, about empire that kind of, I mean, that just kind of starts emerging. You have the floodgates that get, I mean, that, that kind of open. So this is, again, a moment in which I can say I changed my entire argument from, I mean, from my PhD, because by the time I submitted my PhD, there'd still been very little in Britain. And then over the last few years, something has really happened. So the questions really, so the questions here are really, what does it mean to talk about empire? Secondly, who talks about empire? Why do they do it? And what are the mechanisms that they use? And this is and 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 this is probably kind of how I try to think about that. But also, kind of looking at Britain, one of the questions here is, of course, why not talk about empire? And that is probably the hardest question for a historian because we can talk about things that happen. It's very hard to find sources for things that don't happen. Mm-hmm. And so that that I mean that segues uh, nicely into the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is. Um, a more methodological question um, about the uh, field of memory studies. Um, how, do, how do you approach this field? Um, sorry, my microphone's been a little funny right here. Uh, how do you approach this field? And um, what kind of sources do you use? What, um, g- give us the, the quick sort of elevator pitch on um, memory studies and how one does it. Ooh, um, so um, the elevator pitch of memory studies. I'm not even sure I'm, I'm, I'm that much of a memory studies person. I mean, of course, it's. It, I'm, I'm not sure you've ever seen this um, interview with Hannah Arendt um, in which she just kind of gets asked, so what's, it, so what's it like to be a political analyst? And she goes, no, I'm a political philosopher. Um, and I'm... So I'm so I try to think of myself first of all as a historian of memory rather than a memory studies person, and I think this is also how I try to conceptualize my idea of memory. Also, because um, memory studies, of course, as a discipline, has grown a lot. I mean, especially um, in around the mid the mid two thousand, but it is something that you see as 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 a large discipline that that, that appears around the nineteen nineties, usually at the time. Um, looking at many ideas of trauma of um of but me they, they come also through the research first of the memory of the holocaust and then of course expand to other disciplines um and also then become um very literature heavy um and at some point when i kind of started working on memory and also also during my phd i found that there is a lot about um, about sort of memory studies generally that I'm not always sure of as a historian. So of course, extremely good research, but very often I found that claims about memory um, that rely on something that was written in one book was, was just kind of had us had us kind of a leap of faith in them that I, of course, the PhD student wasn't able to do because who cared about my ideas, my leaps of faith, um, but. 
one of the things that I also started thinking about was how also memory and legacies conceptually needed to be different. And this kind of and, and this kind of difference between um, continuities and legacies, also that here Britain and France really shared quite a lot, um, but also something a bit more political about memory. Thinking about memory as kind of a political process um, that requires kind of constant reinterpretation and dissemination to actually make sense to contemporaries. And I tried to therefore kind of make a distinction between abstract continuities, legacies, kind of thing, things that just kind of happen and and a very hard as a historian to actually just kind of pinpoint and something that is memory um, and therefore also this kind of process of narrative creation, which as far as I'm concerned is the kind of political sort of reinterpretation of memory. And I guess that one, um, one anecdote that also made me think about about this idea of reinterpretation, dissemination, all of these things, um, is actually, it's, it's, it's very much this kind of political scandal anecdote from, from 2000, which, um, which I like kind of talking about because, it, because it, it, it just reflects so much. But in 2000, I'm not really sure everyone remembers the then mayor of, Lim- of London, Ken Livingston. I mean, now he's a lot more remembered for his latest sort of um, anti-Semitism, sort of labor anti-Semitism saga than his kind of more previous positions, kind of Red Ken of the 1980s, and then afterwards kind of the first mayor of London after the creation of the mayoralty of London. But generally kind of in, in, in 2000, he, init- he kind of incites this kind of small scandal. And he does that by um, suggesting to remove um, two plinths from Trafalgar Square in London, um, plinths of the generals Napier and Havelock. So from today's perspective, you would just kind of think that Livingston just didn't really agree with with what these kind of very imperial generals represented. This is this is something that has now just kind of become very, uh, a very kind of normal debate. But at the time, actually, nothing was actually further from the truth. Um, his only argument, I mean, I mean and, and, and also another sort of thing one could say is, of course, that if you know Ken Livingston, then you would probably think that his wanting to remove two imperial generals will also kind of work quite well with his um, with his sort of political convictions. But his only sort of arguments um, for removing these generals is that nobody has ever heard of them. And the thing is here that it kind of encapsulates a lot of the debate about, or a lot about kind of memory of colonialism in Britain at the period. So in terms of continuities, legacies, um, Men's on kind of men on pedestals and kind of men on horses, or you could see just kind of around the around just everywhere. I mean, every corner of Britain is kind of being shaped by colonial history, and it wasn't unknown. Um, whatever you want to say about forgetting, but in terms of kind of interpreting this history, in terms of kind of making sense of it, placing it within this kind of public narrative of who we are, it was absent. And in France, um. In the same way, sort of imperial history was very visible, but um, this interpretation has very little with actual history. So it was really about this again process of um, of just kind of reinterpreting history, of mobilizing it for present day priorities, really. And this is kind of what I mean with memories and ongoing political process. So whatever the legacies and continuities of history, memories really how people today make sense of history. 
And what they and and they do it also with the vocabulary and priorities they have for today, really. Um, kind of with present day preoccupations. Um and and I guess here is just kind of where I have to go kind of around the circle and go back to the source of how do you do this? What are the sources that you use? And one of the things they then asked was who again incites debates, who interprets history? Why do they choose to mobilize certain history, certain histories at a certain moment? Um, and here um I try to kind of use a mix of sources. I mean, of course, the first thing was um was publications we're talking about. So if I think about these actors whom I call memory actors in, in my book, I think of people as diverse as kind of activists. I talk a lot about activists, but also politicians, journalists, um, also other historians. I mean, we are um people who create narratives and we are people who do it through various various modes of dissemination, very differently in Britain and France, by the way. Um, but we do that. So apart so one thing is of course to look at publications, to look at the ways these actors try to actually deal with the public. But another way um for me was oral oral, oral history interviews. To if we are talking about these actors, actors were still alive, then talk to them. Try to actually get some kind of a sense of how they saw themselves, how they perceived this um this process of creating a narrative. And another thing that is kind of somewhere in between was trying to do as much digital work as I could, because we are talking about, especially the last 20 to 30 years, and especially a time in a time in which um a lot of the communication, a lot of a lot of kind of the communication behind the scenes, but also through kind of new modes of dissemination of knowledge, kind of Twitter, kind of social networks, but also forums happens online. So I tried to actually find a way to kind of turn that into a methodology to, 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 I mean, to use the online space as an, as an archive, which comes with its own set of issues. Yeah. I, th- I thought you did that rather well, especially, um, um, I don't know if it's the last chapter or the second to last chapter where you're looking at, um, is it Nigel Bigger's um, um, seminar and the the response to that, um, and the uh, much of that's going on on Twitter, and um, I thought it was like treating you know it's very easy for you know old school historians to be rather dismissive of what's going on on Twitter, but this is this is you're taking it seriously as the um, public square, and um, this is where much of the critique was articulated and and worked out in real time it is i mean i guess one of the things about um about these kind of modes of digital dissemination whether twitter or whether something that i found even harder to get to and that was forums especially forums from from the from the mid noughties from the mid yeah from the mid noughties which is something we can get to a bit later but one of the things is of course that if you think about what is a source for a historian you need to get into people's communication. It was, of course, a lot easier at the time when people just archive their letters. Fine, good, great. Um, right now, communication happens on Twitter. That also means that it shapes the way we think. And if we think about memory as the way narrative actually gets created, but also affects the way we think about history, then if a lot of it is disseminated on Twitter or on Facebook um, or through forums, then this is a way that we need to think about as as a source, and we need to also 
and I guess this is just a methodological thing, as historians who will be using these digital sources far more in the future, we need to think about how they become accessible and what we keep. Especially um, one thing I had with looking at, so two examples, um, looking at museums and museums that are now defunct, is how do you find all of their programs? How do you find the way they communicate with people um, if these websites don't exist anymore? Um, Twitter is actually a relatively easy thing, but what happens if you need to get into the heads of activists? Activists talk on forums. Um, today it's Reddit. Um, in the mid-noughties, there was different kind of forums that actually are defunct as well. It's very hard to kind of resuscitate this digital material that could still live somewhere, but could but may actually not exist anymore if the server it's on actually doesn't exist anymore, or just kind of was replaced by something else. So this is, again, it's not about memory of colonialism, but something something for historians who will also be using these digital materials in the future. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And the um, just reading your footnotes and looking at your sourcing, um, that was really um, thought-provoking for me. Um, or how to how to use these uh, these new digital sources, which may may seem sort of ephemeral. I mean, the tweets can be deleted and um, accounts can be taken down, as we know, and so forth. Um, so m- much of the book is about um, uh, how the British and the French talk or don't talk about race. Um, can you compare the uh, conceptualization of race in these two case studies? Um. So, so yes or no. Um, it, I mean, it's so. I think this is probably like one of the questions out here. Um, it is, um, and I guess a part of it is also that, of course, a lot of the book is also thinking about the intersection between talking about race and talking the place of colonial history in national narratives. Um, also, kind of knowing that colonial histories where racial categories are articulated and then also imported to metropolitan context. So in that way, of course, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to actually say, well, talking about empire is talking about race. Um, And of course here um, is that, so the one thing is that I realized that these two things don't have linear relationship. We can get to this later. Um, But also one of the big differences between Britain and France or France and, and quite a few other places, is the way you can address race, or even the word race. It's I mean we have all seen the last the last couple of years very um, very vocal and kind of toxic um, debates and fights in France about about just the word race. And of course, if you if if you want to um, to compare the way Britain and the way race can be discussed or is discussed in, in Britain and France, um, then you have to go to the question of vocabulary and also vocabulary that's available to address phenomena of race. And of course, it's race as, as this kind of social structure, but also then, of course, um, racial politics, racism, the rest of it. And I think in, I think in Britain, if you want to try and find a, a kind of a relatively clear way to talk about race, then the vocabulary of race relations very much exists um, in a way that would be very um, not identical to the way it's used in the US, but it would be very recognizable for an American audience. 
um, you have both a political sort of um, landscape with race relations legislations kind of and sort of um, or just the acknowledge the acknowledgement of race as um, as a very sort of clear you could say component in um, in society it doesn't of course solve problems in its own way but it, when, when it comes to the vocabulary it's a very um, it's a very present category um, of course in France this is not the case and here I and, and here there are kind of I think two levels to why this is not the case kind of beyond I think a caricature of France as a place where you can't talk about race I think one thing about the absence of a vocabulary about uh, about race as kind of a social category is something that you can see in France and Germany and many other more um, continental European states um, after the Second World War, in which the very idea of evoking race also meant that you would be evoking kind of an, a, the racial kind of Nazi sort of racial um, racial cat- uh, racial categories. So in that uh, so in that sense, talking about race is not talking about the social structure of race and uh, that kind of comes from this kind of theorization of it, but it is actually just acknowledging the fact that biological race exists. At the same time, of course, and this is a very French specificity of this debate, um, you can add this Republican sort of universalist component um, in a discourse that, um, how can you say it, in, 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 in kind of this, with this idea that the French Republic cannot see race, uh, the French Republic cannot discriminate between its citizens, and its citizens are first and foremost um defined by their citizenship and by the belonging to the French Republic and therefore cannot actually belong to any kind of other subset of an important community, important subgroup. That actually means that in order to talk about, you can talk about racism in France, of course, racism is bad. Everyone knows racism is bad, is bad. but this sense of race as a, um, as a dominant feature of the, so of social structures just does not have a space in the French discourse. Um, so I guess one of the things that are important here is that, of course, you have this very big difference in vocabulary between between the way you address race in Britain and France. And this difference in vocabulary, and this is something we can get to a bit later, then, of course, affected the strategies of then anti-racist activists, but also of politicians but and, and many other members of society who actually think about why do we need to address colonial history if it is so connected to race? But we can get to this later. So let, let's get into sort of the the meat of uh, of the historical examples. And in the French case, the Algerian War for Independence is so important um, and re- really sort of shapes the paradigms for discussions of uh, of colonialism and and of race. Um, can you tell us a bit about the memory of this war and its intersections with um, French colonial politics? So that is, that's a big thing. Um, <laughs> that is, that is a big, um, a big topic. And also um, one of the things of, about the memory of the Algeria, of the Algerian War of Independence was that I didn't do much new research about it because it has been so well researched. Again, one of the things that I, that, Going into this, going into this project, was quite interesting. Was that in two thousand and twelve, um, the year I started working on this. Also, um, interestingly, the fiftieth anniversary of the 
ceasefire agreement, the end of the war, the um, Evian agreements, by that time, there's been so much work on the memory of the war. There's been so much work, but not only of the war, the memory of the war. 2011, you even created in the French back, so the French kind of leaving certificate, or I think in the US's matriculation, um, this the, the, the history baccalaureate, you even created a, a, like a subject about the memory of the Algerian, not even the history of it. But in 2011, as of 2011, so French school kids need to learn about the memory of the Algerian war. So something was definitely already quite visible there. Now, of course, it is never, um, you can never understate the role of Algeria and the Algerian war of independence in in kind of the French understanding of, colonial, of colonialism, of decolonization, of everything. Of course, Algeria was the proverbial jewel in the crown oh the, the kind of one the one space that probably defines um french colonialism in so many ways and then the algerian war of independence this war that lasts eight years um, um to which two million young french men conscripts are sent to fight in which um countless numbers of victim in, in which countless numbers of victims die and after which um um, about a million uh, sort of European settlers, Pianois, um move to move to the metropole, but also many Algerian Muslims do. So, in a way, it, it's 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 a thing that changes France, but also it is a defeat that defines the end of France's colonial empire. Of course, many other co- uh, French colonies don't. Um, gain their independence through this military defeat. I mean, many of the West African colonies um, move into into forms of independence in, in more peaceful ways. Even even Tunisia and, and Morocco have a very different way into into independence. But still, this defeat, uh, military, um, militarily, culturally, in so many ways, really defines the end of French colonialism. And therefore, because it is so big, because it cannot actually be. Um, be completely erased. It's also the thing that kind of defines um, the dealing with the legacy and the memory of colonialism. And I'm not going to, I mean, to, I mean, to get into too, ma- into too many details, but throughout the 70s, throughout the 80s, the Algerian War of Independence is never entirely absent from the French political debate. Um, one one element about the war that keeps on coming is um, is the is the subject of torture. One of the things that really define the understanding of the Algerian War of Independence in in France is the heavy use of torture by the French by, by the French military. Something that is of course denied by the by the government by the military, but becomes such um, such a well known fact that um, at every point of time. In the 1970s, in the 1980s, every time you would ask the French public whether they believe torture has actually happened in Algeria, they'll say yes. I mean, one of the, um, what, of course, one of one of these kind of um, surveys and polls. I mean, the people quote quite a lot is from the early 90s, in which um, a representative group of young people just kind of get asked whether they believe torture is taking place in Algeria, and over 90% actually say yes. So. It is a well-known fact. It's also a thing that defines um, the way the French public actually thinks about this war. And at the same time, you have these um, recurrent um, recurrent scandals 
of new torture stories from the 1970s, from 1980s. In, in, in 1984, for example, the Canal Enchaîné, it's a satirical newspaper that still exists, even publishes this um, this article that kind of shows that Jean-Marie Le Pen, that kind of Marie Le Pen's father, the person who had... Um, who I mean, who had also um, created the, the Front National had also himself tortured people in Algeria. So these are things that exist by by the nineteen nineties. Um, you have around um, two thousand books written about the Algerian War, sixty um, around sixty films. It's it's around, and yet at the same time, um, you have this historian called Benjamin Sora, um, who is probably the most the, the person kind of most identified with the memory of the Algerian War of Independence, who in, the, in, in 1991 writes um, his work, La Gangrene et l'Oublie, so the, the gangrene and, forget, and, 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 the, and the forgetting. At the same time, also, um, he creates this TV documentary that becomes relatively well-known, Les Agnès Jalène. So the, and, they, and they come out right about the same time, right? It's a, they, it's, they, it's, 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 it's a well-managed uh, rollout. It's the, a well-managed rollout. The book rollout, and, the, but, and the TV series. But he also works on them together. Uh-huh, okay. He also works... It, for him, it's a part of the same project, in a way. Yeah. So he yeah. thinks... So Benjamin Stora... I mean, much has been said about, about Benjamin Stora, but he is very aware of his role in, as kind of the the educator of the public, in a way. Um, he thinks of the... Of, of, of the um of the show, of the documentary, as something that would... Um, that would kind of talk to the same kind of audience as the Le Chagrin de la Pitié. Um, so this, so one of these films... The, the, so- that, the Sorrow and the Pity for our yes. uh, American listeners who are, yeah. are maybe not francophone. Yes, sorry, the Sorrow and the Pity. <laughs> not, not to pick on any particular nationality. Yes. But, uh. yeah. <laughs> or, or, or Brits, I mean, to be fair. I mean, we are... I mean, we, should, we, should, we, should, we should not pretend we know better. Um, uh, but so the Sorrow of the Pity uh, and the Pity, which also um, became this big documentary that exposed many people in France to the realities of, of collaboration. So one of the things that um, this Stora does is to kind of place himself within the same um, kind of memory debate. He sees the role of his work as as kind of in, inciting a public debate that would kind of continue the same ideas of the debate that had happened about 10 years earlier about French responsibility for I mean, for, I mean, for the deportation of Jews and for collaboration. Um, and in a way, he also thinks about his works as as, as kind of works that would, um, that would make the French people care about this, about the Algerian War of Independence. Because one of the things here is that, and this is, I think, one of the contradictions in looking at the Algerian War of, and its, and of Independence and its memory, is that if in the 1990s, you have all of these debates about uh, about about torture, about the Algerian War of Independence, all of these things. You still have this very clear sort of feeling that nobody talks about the Algerian, the Algerian War, that um, that the Algerian War of Independence is not actually remembered as it should. That um, the violence of the war, not only the violence of the war, the violence of the state um, that. I mean, the, I mean, the, basically inflicted all of. I mean, all of this, all of this violence, this colonial violence, um, is not actually remembered. And now, of course, the question is, what does it mean to be remembered? Because you have all of these, all of these people talking about it, and yet, for people like Stora, 
The problem is that, first of all, people don't care enough about it. They don't prioritize it as something that makes them define who they are as French people. Um, and yet, and then at the same time, they're not outraged by it. And um, and that, that, it's, that it is not a part of their sort of references, kind of the common references of what is the most important part of French history. And that changes a lot in the early 2000s. So in, 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 in the year 2000, um, Le Monde actually publishes an, uh, a piece, an interview with, a, um, with, an old, um, with an old lady who is also an FLN. So FLN is the Front de Libération Nationale, so the National Liberation Front, so the, um, the um, Algerian organization that actually fought against, um, against the French government and, and got um, its independence. Um, so she's an FLN veteran, but also had been um, tortured by the French military. And she, and, and the angle for this story was that she was looking for the doctor who saved her life. Not that she was, no, it, it wasn't another one of these um, accusa- sort of uh, accusational pieces. It was more about this, this very, um, very articulate old grandmother figure looking for the doctor who saved her life while she was being tortured. And this article, um, cuts through um, public emotion in France. It cuts through so much public emotion that it creates a huge scandal about torture. I mean, it creates um, a huge sort of emotional um, emotional sort of um, snowball, which means every publication in France, in France starts talking about torture, starts talking about the Algerian War of Independence. More and more veterans also come, I mean, also come out with their own stories. And um, at the same time, you have one of the big sort of French generals, General Massu, who in the 1970s actually denied, I mean, I mean, did not entirely deny using torture, but also, um, but also um, just, just, justified its necessity, um, who comes out and actually says, yes, I, I apologize. I mean, I, I regret having, I regret using this torture, but also this, the, I mean, this doctor exists. At the same time, you have this other general, Uceres, coming out as this kind of big villain, um, also I mean, with one I kind of um, kind of covered because it just kind of came out from a botched and, cataract and he, operation, right? And his his book was yes, we tortured, and and probably should have tortured more. Right? Yes. So and and the thing was, of course, we tortured. What the hell did you think? How else we would? How, I mean, how else were we supposed to win the war? So you have this this kind of snowball of public emotions, snowball of public interest that puts yeah. the Algerian War of Independence in. In kind of the public debate everywhere, and and and, and also if uh, excuse me, but it's it's also in the context of post nine eleven, and American um, use of torture, torture. And, and that that debate, um, you know, Dick Cheney's going to the dark side and enhanced interrogation. So there, it's 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 a French moment, but it's also part of a larger transatlantic international uh, conversation. That's right. I mean, it begins before nine eleven. Yeah, yeah. It begins before nine eleven, but when, but the more the more it goes on, of course, the more the more the references also change. Like the, so, so these references are not only the references of that the kind of begin with comparing the French use of torture to the Gestapo's use of torture to to Nazi use of torture, but also just go, I mean, getting into other references that are not entirely popular in France at the time, like um, well, Abu Ghraib. And that's um, 
and that also just kind of changes, and that just kind of also just um, changes with with time. Um, but I guess the one thing about um, about and, and and we could also just kind of move into other debates about the Algerian War of Independence. But the one, but if we go to kind of the main things about it, so first of all. Um, the Algerian War of Independence, and especially after this kind of torture debate, um, establishes itself as something that's important in France. It's it's important in France, but it's also important differently to different communities in France. Um, and that is, and and you have very different memories of this war. This is also a part of what Stora also writes in the in these nineteen nineties works. I mean, there are very different memories between memories of veterans who fought the war. Um, the, and, and who also in the 1980s and 1990s start fighting or struggling for their versions to be, I mean, to be well known through veteran associations. There is a very different memory um, of the Pianois community, so um, so European settlers who um, who mostly involuntarily after the after Algerian independence moved to France and have their own version. Of um, of French colonial rule, French presence, which these would they see with great nostalgia and kind of and think of the end of this life in Algeria as, as the betrayal of of Charles de Gaulle. There is a very different memory of a group called the Arki. So these are Algerian Muslims who, in one way or another, worked with the uh, with, with the French um, uh, with the French administration in Algeria, and afterwards got um, were persecuted by the new Algerian state and kind of and, and needed to find a way to. Um, to get, I mean, to to be, to move to the metropole, and and once and once they did, were also just housed in different types of um, of inter of internment camps. There is, of course, a very different memory of Algerian Muslims who moved to Algeria, who moved to who moved to France in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, um, and then, of course, there is there are, of course, many people in France who were exposed to the war that didn't, but but were but were not there. So, at that point, what 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 you start seeing is that the Algerian question or the memory of 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 how to represent the Algerian War of Independence in France, what is its importance, and how do you and how do you represent it in whether in memorials, whether in street names, what are the things you're you're going to remember about it? That becomes one of the big debates. Um, one of the most visible debates in France in the two, yeah. in the two thousands, absolutely, and then especially the 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 ways in which the war spilled over into the metropole. So the um, the uh, the massacre of October seventeenth, nineteen sixty one, where um, maybe two hundred Algerians were uh, quote drowned by bullets, um, you know, in, in a police riot in central Paris. The, um, um, I uh, I forget the name of the film. Was it outside the law where they they reference the um, the torture centers in Paris where activists were being tortured? Not not in Algiers, but in in Paris. Um, and um, you know it, it it wasn't just a war that was over there. It was a war that um, that had uh, repercussions in, in French soil and, and events on French soil. But, um, you know your discussion reminds me of. Um, uh, through um, my wife's extended family with some very, very um, good uh, close relationship with some French family members who are true Parisians. And uh, Leo is a, uh, is a real soison vitard. He, he claims he took the nude um, drama class at, um, at uh, was it Perisette? Uh, the, 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 
yeah, yeah. He's he's a real Swazawita, right? And um, uh, we were we were down by the Eiffel Tower one day, and I said, "Well, I want to see the new uh, memorial to the Algerian War." And he said, "I'm a real Parisian. I'll tell you, there is no memorial to the to the Algerian War." I'm like, "No, no, there is. It's it was recently opened, and 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 I think it's right over here on the side of the Seine." And they 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 said, "Impossible. There is no such thing." And and I found it for them, and they were blown away. And it's and it's a pretty modest affair, and sort of an it, unless you really know what you're looking for and what you're looking at, it takes a moment to realize it's a war memorial. Could you could you maybe say a few quick words on uh, what that memorial looks like? Um, so, if we're talking about the one, um, the two thousand four one in Quebec, yeah, so, yes, right, right, right inside the Seine. Yes. So yeah. that I mean that one is just it's basically got kind of th- it kind of three very not extremely visible columns with names on them. And a part of what one of the interesting things about this memorial was, of course, that what is this memorial for? Is it a memorial for the war? It's, it's mainly, for, of course, a memorial for um, that, I mean, that was incited or that its gestation was something was, was something that was demanded both by um, by veterans but also um, by um, settlers associations and by the time it's actually built and 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 the memorial itself is very 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 how can you say it it's very tame um but a part of it was also that it it was um it created its own um its own sort of how can you say it it's own sort of dynamics when uh, the president at the time, Jacques Chirac, unveiled it um, and unveiled it to quite a few people who weren't really that interested because um, because it was not really the best type of communication with journalists for that. I mean, I mean for that day, um, and at the same time, of course, um, the um, further debates about when to, when to institutionalize a memory day for. The, for the Algerian War of Independence, then just kind of decided to use the date of the unveiling of this memorial that quite a few people don't really necessarily know about as a kind of a new memorial day in France so that nobody would start picking fights about which is the best memorial day you can find in France. So so, so this memorial has its own sort of, its own sort of, um, sort of gestation, but I think another thing that I, of course, I forgot to talk about entirely, which is quite interesting and quite important to the way um, we talk about the Algerian War of Independence in terms of memory, and also for this contradiction of having a lot of talk about it and yet kind of feeling that it is not really, um, that it is kind of absent from public discourse, that's kind of disavowed, is of course the fact that for a long time this war was considered the La Guerre Sans Nom, or the war without a name, because for I mean I'm sure I mean I mean today with with um, the special operation in Ukraine it kind of does ring a very kind of a sordid bell. But during the um, the war, so between 1954 and 1962, officially it was not a war but a peacekeeping operation in Algeria. Of course, the reason for that officially was that because Algeria was not considered as a colony, but as a part of France, if the government had admitted that it was a war, then it would have actually needed to admit that it was a civil war, which, which of course, nobody wanted. And for a long time, one of the demands of, of war veterans, but also quite a few people, was to actually officially call whatever happened there a war. And it was only 1999 that veterans associations get the government to 
legislates a new law that actually acknowledges the fact that the Algerian War of Independence had been a war. Um, one of the interesting things is by 1999, when you when when the government does legislate it, um, most coverage of it is relatively cynical. Of oof, well, it's taking them quite a lot of time to actually say the obvious. And but that's again another sort of another sort of interesting thing about just realizing how the state was just was 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 so um, did for, for quite a long time try to avoid remembering and it, 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 it tried to I mean try to avoid talking about it which again was something that was um that was also seen in kind of 19 in, in the kind of in the 1960s through different amnesties I think I should probably just kind of not give any more details because this is just going to be a very long, long sort of rant <laughs> no 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 it's it's all it's all fascinating um um could you say just a few words and I think you alluded to this previously in the way in which um uh, Holocaust or Shoah um, studies and memory impacted uh, memories of colonialism, um, particularly in, in terms of the French conception of the devoir de mémoire? So this is one of the things that I found quite interesting in the way um, memory actually became such an important element in, in French politics. And in, and in a way... Um, so many actors in France wanted to talk about memory. And one of one of the continuities I think I've been able to trace is looking at the um at the gestation of this term that you just kind of talked about, devoir de mémoire, which is the duty to remember. And it is something that you start using in the night in kind of activist milieus, but but a lot more in political milieus kind of between the 1970s and 1990s. And by the 1990s, four French politicians, um, and especially in um, in the one sort of very well-known speech by the president, Jacques Chirac, 1995, who um, acknowledges um, French responsibility for deportation of Jewish citizens, um, and of course for collaboration, is, um, is the fact that the French state, the French Republic, is responsible um, for the memory of its own crimes. It's, um, so this kind of duty to remember, this devoir de mémoire, is, again, a state's responsibility in France. It's really, really important. And I think this is, again, a big difference between Germany, between Germany, Britain and France, that in France, many of these debates always return to the state and the state's, um, and the state's re- responsibility and the state's duty to do things. In this case, it's the state's duty to remember its own crimes against its own people. And it starts, or, or it gets articulated through talking about the Holocaust. But very quickly thereafter, 1998, so if, so if this kind of Chirac speech is 1995, um, 1998, um, with, the, um, with, with the state's desire to kind of to, to, um, celebrate the 150th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in France, um, and its kind of first big plan to celebrate it in a very kind of uh, kind of paternalistic way of talking about the great sort of Victor Chaucher who had abolished slavery. And um, at that point, um, so Caribbean activists, when they start, um, when, when they start sort of struggling against it, when they, when, they, when they try critiquing it, very quickly, they kind of take up this concept of a devoir de mémoire to actually demand that also their own suffering that, that was also inflicted by the French state um, be recognized by the French state. So this devoir de mémoire also then um, becomes 
a way for other communities to actually demand their own, what you could say, memorial justice, or also that their own narrative be recognized by the state. Again, and, and here it's quite interesting that, of course, you always have this, um, you can say this big contradiction between the state that does not you know, that does not see race, that does not see very specific groups, but also these specific groups demanding that they're kind of, I mean, that they're basically that they're belonging to this state be recognized through the recognition of their, um, of their suffering by the state. Which, it, which is, it's a tricky process in French political discourse, because on the one hand, as you said, you have this uh, allegedly colorblind state that doesn't even track uh, race or ethnicity in official statistics, because that you know, that, that reaction against Nazism, right? So you don't have good demographic data for how many people there are of Algerian or Sub-Saharan African or Vietnamese descent, right? Because the, the state's colorblind because they're- Or oh, whatever kind of category you would you would define right. yourself as. Yes. Right, right. right. It's good. And, 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 that, and that, that also works against the universalism of the Republic, right? That you're, you're, you're branching off, but at the same time, hey, there are people with identities mm-hmm. that want their identities recognized. And again, appealing to the state, which I think is, is I think you're really honest, but really a very French uh, phenomenon there. I mean, it is a very French phenomenon, but also kind of gives them, one of the interesting things is that it gives them also a way to, um, how can you say, to address these things in a very public way. Because this devoir de mémoire also gives them a vocabulary to actually address their kind of, I mean, their belonging to this data also inside these debates or the, in these kind of memory debates. Now, one of the things, and this is kind of going back to race again, um, and this is something that, um, that I mean, that I found happened far more in, in 2005 and after 2005, is that, of course, some of these activists who would use the Vardemar to kind of demand memorial justice actually would much rather have talks about kind of anti-racism and race. But for them, the the possibility of actually addressing um, their own kind of role in France through this, I mean, through this historical vocabulary also gives them a a way to really um, critique the state. So, 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 so again, it's a very, it's a very contradictory um, thing, but it also gives them this kind of weapon, you could say, that they can use when they want to say, well, we belong here as well, and how this belonging depends on, or, or, is, or how can you say it, how this belonging is also the result of a very painful history. Yeah. And so you mentioned 2005, and that's an important sort of hinge point in your narrative in, in regards to France. What um, Politically, what uh, what's going on in 2005 in terms of the memory of, of empire and discussions of race? So one of the interesting things about 2005 and is that everyone you talk to in France remembers 2005 as this kind of big year, this explosion. Something happened after 2005, nothing was ever the same again. Uh, but 2005, and it's if you just kind of look at what really happens, it's just a snowball of events that are actually not really very connected to one another. It's just different events that seem to just kind of follow on one another. They give a lot of observers the impression that something here is going on. And of course, these events are, the fact they happened in 2005 is in a way, or it's relative, I mean, it's really relatively coincidental, but all of these events are, of course, um, results of things that happened before. 
So one of these one of these events is um, the creation of a group called Les Ingenieurs de la République, which is which it seems which at first seems very inconsequential, and it could have been also been very inconsequential in quite a few ways. But because of the other events, it actually got this kind of new mythical, um, mythical sort of sort of 2005 sort of sort of sense in in the people's rendering of this of of this year and the indigenous republic is um is an anti-racist group so the indigenous of the republic um who in 2003-2004 through this i mean through a french debate about an uh, about a law that would a headscarf ban basically um actually realized that there was something broken in in the anti-racist sort of scene in France and 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 their idea was to was to create this this new organization that would um that would unite and federate non-white people um for non-white people so they called themselves the the population indigenous so they actually use this colonial word indigen to refer to the indigenous population in the, in the colonies and in their publications and in their kind of in the in, in the big sort of um, founding texts they talk about the colonial continuities in the republic they talk about the fact that france is a colonial republic it has been a colonial republic they use these kind of this idea of colonial continuities the thing about this text is that it appears in January 2005. Quite a few people look at it, quite a few people don't. At that point, it is not necessarily the thing that would start this, this big snowball effect. At the same time, um, in 2005, very, very early on, in February 2005, the French National Assembly ratifies um, a new law. A law that is, um, that is, I mean, that is, the basically the result of um of Pienoir activists so um so these kind of um european settlers that had left algeria um europe so Pienoir activists who for years and years and years demand that the government recognizes and acknowledges their um their importance to the republic and the fact that and, and also their narrative of how their actions in the um in the in in, in algeria reflected the kind of French kind of national genius. A part of it is, of course, that this this law is not a first kind of a first this kind of law. It is the um, it is the continuation of a whole sort of legal um, legal fight. First of all, um, get many um, get a lot of compensation from the French state. But in this time, this law is actually seen as a law of recognition. Many of these um, the the kind of the associations who try to kind of work for this law trend to, to, I mean to get this law to I mean to get this law done think of it as a continuity with another law from 2001 in which the French state had acknowledged that the um, enslavement of Africans with the, the slave or the transatlantic slave trade was a crime against humanity and needs to be remembered so they think of it again within this kind of devoir de mémoire it's now also our community it's, it was the I mean if 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 I, if I if I were to be kind of blunt and crude about that I'm also kind of thinking about interviews I mean so they they had this this kind of rendering of the story it was the Jews first then afterwards it was it, it was the Caribbeans now it's us um and this law doesn't only acknowledge the kind of the the let's say role of of, of settlers and kind of the history of the French Republic within its gestation in a very empty national assembly um it gets a fourth article that calls on schools and school curricula to um 
to stress the positive role of the, of the French presence overseas, and especially North Africa. So basically French colonialism in Algeria. The, the law passes relatively, really relatively quietly. Nobody really talks that much about it. This idea of honoring the kind of the suffering of the um, of the Pienwa is something that is relatively popular because, because they have suffered as well. One really does have to say that. Um, and yet at the same time, you have a group of teachers, especially sort of um, history geography teachers, who start protesting against it. Now, these protests remain at first relatively low-key, but they start getting more and more more and more traction, more and more steam, especially as the as the Algerian president realizes that the French um, the French Parliament just legislated a law that called on schools to um, to talk about the, the positive role of colonialism. Um, then also, um, the, and the same thing start ha- starts happening with more and more and more debates about that. Now and then, something else happens in October, like kind of the end of October, early November, um, and that is. A whole wave of urban unrest in everywhere and everywhere in Paris. That has nothing, of course, to do with this law in a way, and probably has everything to do with it. But what happens then is that two um, two young um, two young teenage boys um, get electrocuted as they um, try to run away from the police in a suburb of, of Paris called Clichy sous Bois. So it's one of these very underprivileged suburbs of, of, of Paris, and as they died, and as basically died just kind of running away from the police, um, different um, different groups of, again, kind of disaffected people in, in, in the suburbs start, um, start demonstrating. At first, they kind of start demonstrating against kind of the police, against um, different different kind of symbols of the Republic, so of course the firefighters, et cetera, et cetera, burn, burn cars. But this time around, it's, um, it actually goes out of hand. And for about three weeks, um, you start having a, a, an increased sort of wave of urban unrest everywhere in the country. So it starts in Clichy-sur-Bois, then, um, then expands into um, into the whole of Paris and the suburbs, and then afterwards goes into basically the whole country. Um, what's interesting there is that suddenly, w- one way of talking about this, about what's wrong in France, what's wrong with kind of French society, about discrimination, all of these things, about immigration, Suddenly, in a year after the Indigenous Republic happened, in which you are talking about this law that, that I mean had just been legislated upon, then much of the media's interpretation of what's going on also goes back to colonial continuities, and they start debating this: is colonial continuities is that kind of it is is this the element that would explain what's going on in France? And then, of course, to talk about 2005 again, the icing on the cake arrives, and this is where um, the National Assembly, after these urban arrests, after these riots, actually decides to, and, and also after a lot of um, a lot of sort of international protests against this law, actually decides to debate this law, um, and especially its fourth article, in the in the National Assembly. So, so what you get here is probably the first time you have a national government talking about the legacies of colonialism. And they kind of talk about what is colonialism? Is colonialism good, bad? How do we remember it? Who, I mean, who are the victims? And what happens in this debate is that the um, UMP, so the, um, the Conservative Party that at the time controls the National Assembly with a complete majority, 
um, takes very much um, a side that you could, I mean, that is very nostalgic about colonialism and tries to talk about the good of colonialism, the left also unites behind the fact that this law is just unacceptable. Um, and the thing after this debate is for weeks and weeks and weeks, every newspaper in the country starts talking about colonialism. What is colonialism? How does it affect us today? And um, very quickly turns into a huge scandal. So Jacques actually realizes that the only way to make this go away is to use a not very democratic sort of um, power of the president to rescind this fourth article because this parliamentary majority would actually not do it. And um, I mean, he calls this law this um, this gauche connerie, so a big fuck up. Um, and very and very quickly, you have this kind of debate after after a whole year in which. Um, different types of colonial continuities actually come to the fore in which every part and any kind of media organization now starts talking about how do we remember colonialism also with with these words using this vocabulary of memory of devoir de mémoire of what does it mean for us today and afterwards you do see that the the, that the debate moves i mean just kind of really changes I mean, when I say change, it doesn't necessarily mean good. But afterwards, this idea of remembering colonialism becomes very, very important and kind of key to talking about history in France. Right. And then in the last chapter in your section on France, you talk about the way that the memory of colonialism becomes uh, a political marker, and which you know resonated so much with what we've been observing in the the culture wars here in the United States, you know, with the 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 boogeyman of uh, critical race theory and and, uh, and so forth. Could you could you just sort of a, a quick wrap up for France? So what 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 happens to uh, uh, this politicization of the discourse on memory? I mean, I'm going to try and be very very quick about it because I think one of the things that I, I mean I tried to show in this chapter is just really how um, whole elite in France just decides that now the memory of colonialism is a way to actually show what it means to be on the right and what it means to be on the left. And these are people who, of course, and, and, and one of the interesting things here is that now we talk about culture wars and it seems so obvious. Oh, it's not obvious that the, that the right in France would have been so nostalgic of, me of, of, of memories of, of colonialism, especially because the right in France is Gaullism. Now, de Gaulle is actually the one who got France out of Algeria. Now, I mean, the set, I mean, all of these kind of settlers organizations who want to be nostalgic about Algeria, they hate to go. So one of the things you need here is actually to get the Gaullist party, the UMP at the time, those who are today the Républicains, who are very much, who kind of think of the Gaulle as their kind of, the, the big founding father, you know, kind of the Thatcher, Reagan, the kind of the, 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 the kind of conservative character to actually be completely anti-Gaullist and repudiate, in a way, this kind of Gaullist tradition, and to say that what that now means to be on the right is actually to um, to I mean to position to, to to position oneself on the what you could call the no repentance camp. So this is so this is a way that um, Sarkozy, who um, in two thousand seven becomes president, also just fashions his presidential campaign on kind of the no repentance. The repentance, of course, of the people who want to repent for French, for French history, the left. And what is interesting afterwards that in two thousand and twelve, it is is exactly the left who kind of takes over, kind of realizing that if you want the, the kind of the best way to position oneself um, on this kind of the, the cultural 
scale or the cultural level is actually to talk about the memory of colonialism too. Um, and, and François Hollande does that very, very quickly in 2012 um, in a way to just kind of show his kind of left-wing credentials. And this is, again, something I, I mean, I try to also map through different different thinkers, different sort of elite discourse up until what I think has been happening in the last few years in which um, if you look at Macron, who kind of decides that he is, of course, not, neither right nor left, but comes with a very, with a with with a, with a very kind of all all right sort of um, so I mean I mean sort of politics. One of the things he's been doing very I mean very quite a lot actually was to use the memory of colonialism as a way of um, of how could you say it of of, of showing his progressive. Um, credentials, this kind of the centrist progressive credentials, um, through also many um, many very sort of quick and decisive, uh, or quick and decisive, but relatively decisive actions um, about um, the commissioning of different of different reports about, let's say, the um, uh, restore. I mean, the um, returning of of colonial artifacts also the acknowledgement of um of torture of, of Maurice Sedan, many of these things um and and also starting with Macron's of course sort of uh, first presidential campaign in 2017 I mean um claiming that colonialism had been a crime against humanity so one of the things you see is that this kind of memory of colonialism had actually turned into um you could say a kind of a talking point that can be very easily appropriated by different kind of political actors and, and it also is that they actually has become one of these priorities in French political discourse. Yeah. So let's, let's jump across the channel here and um, talk a bit about Britain and you hold that the memory of empire was deprioritized um, in the UK. Um, what, what, what does this mean to deprioritize this memory? So um, deprioritization is something that I, actually found in a way of when I was trying to talk about silence in Britain. So so my, my the book's name is The Sins of Silence, which I'm not even sure I like that much, but you know. Um, um, but it is, one of the things I found very difficult is how do you talk about silence? Because as a historian, you can't really do that. Um, you can say that people don't speak. It's very, you can see that they don't speak, but you can't say why. So unless we unless you have censorship and you have actual sort of a very sort of specific politics of censorship, nobody tells you, or very few people tell you why they don't say something. And one of the things that you see in Britain um, in the 1960s is this very quick transition from politics in which empire on the level of discourse is very much um, identified with, with what Britain is um, to a discourse in which empire is very absent from it and it's one of the and, and it's also one of these things that you also see in a lot of research about the kind of the cultural history of decolonization in britain um whether it's Stuart ward or, or other or other people of of and, and people who are of course just like me in a way so uh, convinced that of course empire lives on but at the same time how do you explain this complete um abandoning of references to empire and you do it very quickly also on kind of a cultural level and political level it's very hard to actually imagine that people just kind of do it so so quickly and in, in in a way that is just kind of so 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 just broad um 
So one of the things that I was trying to look at is really how can you how can you explain this? Of course, you, you've 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 got these kind of different different ideas of explaining it because it was it became uncomfortable to talk about empire but 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 I, I i can't make this argument i mean i don't have anyone telling me this i don't but one of the things you do see and this is probably a way to talk about uh, about silence is to look at people who talked about empire and suddenly stop talking about it um looking at the kind of people who would have talked about or talked about in france and kind of didn't in britain and one of the things um i did kind of see is that in looking at um actors who quite before prioritized the empire as the kind of the the the, the main sort of element of what britain is didn't necessarily just completely stop thinking about empire that didn't necessarily stop um believing in empire some of them we can't say whether they did they not or not but they stopped prioritizing empire as the as as the way the thing that makes britain british and you can see that one of the things i found most interesting is of course especially in the kind of conservative and far-right movements in britain um far-right movements we're talking about the league of empire loyalists so there is empire there, and yet in the 1960s, they they kind of really transform their ideas about being the far right, and then also kind of when they get into the into kind of the National Front moment in the 1970s. Even though they're often the same people, they're the people who come with this with with these kind of racist ideas of of, of, of they come from the empire. They stop prioritizing the empire when they say who they are and what they stand for. One of one of course of the things you see. I mean, one of one of the, I think, people. One of one of the kind of figures you talk about quite often as as a kind of transition from, you can say, from an imperial Britain to an, to a Britain that accepts of a, that accepts this kind of little Englandism, is of course Enoch Powell, who starts as a very imperial character. I mean, you know, kind of going into, um, in going to Churchill's office, saying he's going to retake India, to a person who. In, in in 1959 is becomes extremely well, in the 1950s becomes um extremely doubtful of empire and thinks of empire as a thing of the past um and then rearticulates as kind of english belonging as kind of a very white english belonging but not white english belonging as kind of the whiteness that controls the empire but the whiteness that has its home um in england so this kind of Deprioritization of empire, something I and, actually. And what, I'm sorry, what year is his famous Rivers of Blood speech? 68. 68, right. 68. And so this, 68. Is, this, is, this is maybe the most mature articulation of his uh, little England island race. Um, uh, what yeah. I mean, so, one of the interesting things about the island race thing is, of course, the island race before is something that is both very much a part of the island race. But also the race, therefore, just kind of becomes the Imperials' kind of swashbuckling race. Um, but, but with in the kind of nineteen fifties and sixties, this idea of um, of accepting that the empire is a thing of the past also means that the island race then actually, of course, it has its imperial past, but it really belongs to the island um, on this on this kind of island. And one of the things, of course, about about Enoch Powell, nineteen sixty eight, Rivers of Blood speech is that it changes the way um the way race is then talked about 
um, if you anti-race associations um, had this kind of joke about um, about uh, speaking about the time of um, about before Powell and after Powell. Um, before Enoch and after Enoch, so um, so BE would be before Enoch and AE would be after Enoch, um, just because just because of the way this um, this discourse um, contributed to the rise of far right of, of, of the far right that um, that came from the same kind of imperial loyalists, but but suddenly just kind of thought of its kind of far right um, goal as a way of making Britain white and making Britain actually. A non-imperial place because all of these kind of people came from the empire and should not be here. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting transition from, you know, or his career from being pro-imperialist to be uh, anti-immigration, and that 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 still captures some of those same sentiments um, of whiteness, white supremacy. Yes. But it it's either going to be exercised over there or exercised here. <laughs> Definitely. Am I, am I reading you right on that? I, in a way, yes. But also, for example, one of the things you can see, I mean, so again, this uh, this different sort of rendering of white supremacy, because because of course the the idea of white supremacy is is I mean has always been a part of colonial um, of, of of kind of the of colonialism, really colonial control. But all of a sudden, white supremacy. Um, kind of gets translated into something that is um, that has allowed Britain to, to have been an empire before, but really belongs in Britain more than anything else. And you see it also. So one of the interesting things, of course, about Enoch Powell is that after his Rivers of Blood speech, he becomes the most popular politician in Britain. So he does get thrown out of the Conservative Party, but within quite a few months, he receives. Um, he receives about a million um, handwritten letters. So, um, one one of the people actually wrote the best sort of books about this uh, about kind of the letters um, received by um, by Powell is Camille, is Camille Schofield. Um, but one of the interesting things is that you have about a million people who take the time to write a letter of support to Enoch Powell, and in these letters, it's quite interesting that how they articulate the way they support him. And it's obvious that they what they support is this kind of anti-immigration, anti-imperial immigration um, sort of sentiment. But for them, none of, but but for them the reason and quite a quite a few letters support this imperial sentiment, this kind of anti sort of sorry, a sort of anti-immigration sentiment, is that they claim that the empire is dead and the and the, and the Commonwealth is a farce. Um, this and for them, this idea of being English, this kind of white Englishness, is very much something that is decoupled from empire. Even though they know, I mean, they, they know that the empire is there. Of course, one of the things you still see in the kind of deprioritization of empire is that it's it's always kind of there in the kind of the Falklands War in 1982, the kind of the very the very sort of imperial pomp of. Of, of patriotism always has i mean it's of course a part it's it's a, it's of course a part of part of it is imperial it is an imperial war and yet at the same time the thatcher's kind of talk of the island race which she which she uses quite a lot in her, in her speeches is actually a lot more to do with well 
of of the kind of the island race of people in Britain in England, kind of the small kind of little Englandism that then afterwards also um, transpires, you can say, into something that also becomes very anti-European. But a lot of it remains very much about about kind of the rearticulation of belonging to little Englandism rather than something that's global. Right. Yeah, I found your discussion both of the. Um... Uh, confusion and um, certain level of skepticism, if not hostility towards the Commonwealth, like what exactly is it? What does it mean? Uh, really provocative. But um, but also um, it, you note that uh, Thatcher was critical of the Queen for being too identified with em- the Empire. And uh, I thought that was a really fascinating moment. You have, again, one should, I mean, we should never take it, take any of this too far, probably. But mm-hmm. a part of it is really that, um, and and again, none of these. One of the problem with actually talking about deprioritization is that, of course, there it's 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 a contradiction because on the one hand, many of these imperial sort of continuities definitely are still there. If you talk about racism in this period, if you talk about the sense of British. Um, of or English sort of superiority that I mean I mean that is reflected in 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 Thatcher. It is of course something that starts as a very imperial and is a, is a very imperial notion, but in the but in this period, you realize that there is a necessity to rearticulate and kind of to reformulate an English belonging that is very little Englandist, mm-hmm. and and I guess one of the interesting things here is that once for about 20, 30, 40 years, people do deprioritize empire. Even though you still have these kind of imperial continuities, they have created a new a new narrative. Right, right. So you've got a chapter that's uh, provocatively entitled um, Convivial Multiculturalism's Tyranny of the Present. Uh, can, you, can you unpack that for us? Yes. So it's, again, one of these, one of these questions. So my two first British chapters are actually about how do you explain people who didn't talk about empire, who used to talk about empire, who suddenly talk, who suddenly stopped doing that. Um, and the first one we just talked about, that the prioritization of empire was mainly about conservatism. Whereas in this chapter, I tried to think about anti-racist activists, anti-racism, um, and also groups of communities um, of people who, but basically um, ex-imperial subjects who moved to Britain. And one of the things you, of course, see is that in the 1960s and 70s, um, anti-racist activists um, actually do talk about empire. They, they, um, they articulate their belonging to Britain, which they're not even sure they're going to stay there, by the way. This is the first generation of, of, of sort of imperial immigration, um, a, a generation that... I mean that um, suffers. What, so one of the th- the suffers an incredible amount of sort of racism. So the first race riots already in the nineteen fifties um, in Nottingham, Notting, uh, Notting Hill, um, and but they articulate their belonging through a shared sort of colonial, uh, colonial history. One of the things that very interesting is, of course, the nineteen seventies, nineteen sixties, seventies, and the movements of Black Power in Britain is that they um, formulate their belonging their belonging to Britain through, of course, colonial violence. I mean, when the, the, the trial of the Mangrove Nine 
I don't think I have the time to actually start getting into it. But one of one, one of the things about this trial is that it is a site of articulation of belonging of these um, of these Caribbean Black Power um, activists through talking about colonial about colonial control about the white about the white man's colonial control. In the 1980s, all of this disappears, and all of this disappears. Um, first of all, um, through the disappearance of what you can of of the kind of the political blackness movement. The political blackness is something that is very that is very British and is also very colonial in nature. And this desire to kind of think about blackness not as something that comes from, um, come, I mean, I mean, I mean, that comes from the idea of, um, of relation to Africa or kind of descent being descendants of Africa, but kind of a, a, a kind of a non-white political community that is, of course, based on a shared history of colonial oppression, and that, of course, is a way to try to uh, to try to unite. Um, both kind of Caribbean, African, but also South Asian um, activists and also populations, and 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 it has its heyday in kind of the nineteen seventies. It suffers also from very different types of, um, of 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 sort of stripes within activist communities. Also, um, also through a very sort of clear prioritization of of sort of political blackness was one thing, but also kind of taking a lot of Black power um, sort of references from the US that also emphasize sort of African descendants. Um, but also in the 1980s, kind of the black power movement really fizzles out. And the idea of a political black identity that is based on, on kind, of kind of colonial oppression descendants also kind of fizzles out. And at the same time, um, what, what you start getting is this um, is this kind of um, you could say emergence of of what Stuart Hall then called the um, the multicultural experience or experiment, sorry, the multicultural experiment, and then after and and, and then afterwards uh, afterwards, if you look at kind of Paul Gilroy um, description of this uh, multicultural experiment, what he said, what one of the things that he really talked about is the sense of conviviality and again paul gilroy what he does there is something that i rely on quite a lot because it's it's something that's very hard to theorize is this kind of sense of what multiculturalism gave society in the sense of forward-looking forward-thinking convivial living together and togetherness and it's quite one of the interesting things, of course, about the creation of this kind of multicultural discourse is that it really, it really is born in the 1980s through, um, let's say, at first kind of politically through organisations like the, um, the GLC, so the Great London Council, which actually sees itself as as kind of as a, kind of a resistance to Thatcherism, but also adopts this idea of a diverse Britain, and in which also in, in which also politics. Is very much um, decided, decided also by the by the need and necessity to acknowledge different groups, um, sort of some special needs, um, and it's, it's also at that time that you start formulating, also on the level of London, but also in other in other urban centres, a politics of um, of different groups of that that kind of receive different different types of support and it also at that same time um culturally one of the things that you start seeing grow in britain is um is a sense of kind of a convivial um cultural multiculturalism as 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 kind of a, as a living together as um 
as kind of a sense of lived as kind of lived experiences. And in terms of looking at how it changes the language of activists, and again, like in the book, I looked at many many kind of different case studies. But one of the things that you see is that this new kind of language of multiculturalism in which um, the idea of a diverse Britain actually is supposed to be achieved through very kind of specific political political goals that are very much a part of race relations legislation that can also be fought against uh, through just um, through just kind of trying to change I mean to change structures to um, after of course the um, after talking about sort of um, institutional racism in um, in 1997 this also gives the impression that you can actually use these multicultural sort of legislation in order to change things rather than to go and talk about these abstract notions of colonialism. Um, and I guess one of the things I kind of tried to think about is how in the 1980s and 90s, this idea of progress that many anti-racist activists feel when I, I did like quoting Stuart Hall thinking about London of the 1980s and 90s as, as a place where everything felt felt possible also because there was a sense of actual um of actual progress also with the change of government of government in 1997 this this kind of idea of forward-looking very kind of um specific multicultural politics allowed many of these activists to focus on this rather than rather than talk about colonial history because because that that kind of idea of why do you need to mobilize it what does it give you at that point kind of disappeared mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so w- one of the things i wanted to ask you about and um we're i'm going to want to be cognizant of time because you've been really really generous with your time but this is all it's all so good and there's so much um could you say a few quick words um <laughs> A few quick words. Um, comparing the 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 memory and memorialization of slavery in um, in France and in Britain, um, I mean, what's sort of the the, the rough sketch of of uh, that? The rough sketch of I, I, I I'll I'll try to do I'll try to be fast. Impossible task. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's I'll try to be fast. I mean, I guess one of the things is that the memorialization. I mean, so I think that. The commemoration, memorialization of enslavement, slavery in France and Britain, probably, if you wanted to look at two case studies, that probably be, would be the most easily comparable. Um, both of them start with um, different types of very uh, regional, local movements in France. It's um, it's not, especially not also to some extent Bordeaux. So this old um, cities actually had made their... Um, made a name for themselves as as um slave ports um at the same time in britain bristol and liverpool um in Nantes and bristol a part of this kind of coming to terms or just kind of memorializing or inscribing the history of of, of enslavement in these kind of urban spaces is also a part of kind of an urban renewal of the, in the in the 1990s of cities that just adopts kind of different different kind of strategies of memory in order to um in order to just kind of find a new identity for themselves also kind of young relatively kind of forward forward thinking places and then afterwards in each country you have um different 
activist groups, both in France and in Britain, who use um, the memory of slavery as a way to um, kind of resist uh, or or just kind of to um, to resist public programs, uh, a public sort of, um, how can you say it, a a public desire to commemorate abolitionism and and abolition. Because in both countries, this, um, there is a very long lasting sort of tradition of commemoration of, of, of abolitions, both in France and, and, and in Britain. And in both countries, this, this, you could say that this um, contradiction between this paternalist tradition of commemorating abolition on the one hand, and the very kind of clear notion that you cannot in any way defend slavery. Slavery is bad. I mean, this is in a very blunt way. Um, the, the way that the, the, the you can defend um that some kind of conservative actors then afterwards would defend colonialism is not doable with slavery. So one of the things is that, you, and, and you see that in both countries, these um, different activist groups then challenge the state, challenge um, the idea of abolitionism and actually demand to actually have their own voices heard. In France, they do it through um, the devoir de mémoire sort of narrative. Um, the way, through um, talking about their space in the Republic, through doing it as um, as, a, as, as a way to talk about their own um, belonging to the Republic. And this is also, um, in France, a very sort of Caribbean thing. Once um, once in France, the state also legislates what you could, what you afterwards call the Tobiralo, that recognizes, that acknowledges in 2001, the... Um, slave trade is a crime against humanity and and kind of memorializes it through kind of school programs etc then one of the things that are interesting about about the dynamics in france is that more and more um more, more and more sort of groups that call themselves black groups try to actually think about how the commemoration of slavery is a way for them to talk about black identity and that also is a that is also partly interesting in in with different conflicts between caribbean african organizations with different types of organizations thinking about what blackness means and then return to this idea of slavery and enslavement to talk about blackness of course in britain that is less the case you have um the organizations that want to acknowledge slave slavery and enslavement of course do it um, as black organizations not necessarily as caribbean organizations but as black organizations and they demand the state in 2007 um uses the bicent would use the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade to actually talk about the role of slavery and enslavement in britain and one of the things i think are very interesting in britain with um the uh, with with the way slavery was actually commemorated was that it used it is the one place where there has been a a very long-lasting tradition of commemorations of abolition abolitionism and different black organizations managed to use this tradition to actually demand to talk about the role of slavery within kind of british history and then kind of to talk about how slavery was actually not just an american thing but also a british thing or mainly a very british thing um so this is so so this is actually a case that is very much that is very different to the rest of talking about um about 
colonialism because first of all it starts earlier and secondly it ha- it is a lot more successful in kind of getting in gaining public attention whether this public attention is always successful in imposing a new a new type of discourse or narrative this is also of course something one can debate but in terms of how you actually talk about this is this is this is very different to the rest of kind of colonial memory yeah yeah um finally um could you say a few words on um discussion you conclude the uh the section on britain with um uh the this concept of the imperial balance sheet and and that debate and who some of the actors are and uh and that as a number of historians who play a role here so i guess one of so the my concluding chapter in britain is about the debate that actually emerges at the end because if the two first chapters about Britain is kind of trying to think about silence and why do people stop talking about it, then one of the things that start happening around 2006 and then around 2016 is this sudden sort of the, the, the kind of really kind of opening of the floodgates and talking about 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 imperial history and what and how imperial history just probably relates to today about about legacies, about... Yeah. Um, get, get, gets us to a point where we kind of wish uh, Neil Ferguson wouldn't talk about Empire. Exactly. <laughs> which, which, which is, again, one of the issues that once you actually start talking about it, you have everyone talking about it, and that is... <sighs> um, and Neil Ferguson is also the person who talks about Empire already in 2003, so he is yep. one of the yep. early early adopters of Empire. Yeah. Um, Early adopter. Yes. Yes. As you can see, I've been talking for quite a long time. So I'm actually <laughs> starting to use very bizarre expressions around here. Uh, so I'm th- so no, he's one of the one of and and when you talk about um imperial imperial nostalgia, then of course even in the in the early noughties were sorry, one one of the one of the very sort of early people who talk about imperial nostalgia and and, and are not in any way um do not find it in any way difficult to say the nostalgic empire is of course Neil Ferguson, um, and Neil Ferguson works within what I then call the balance sheet approach of thinking about. I mean, not only I call it the balance sheet approach, but um, thinking about um, rehabilitating empire through talking about the positive roles of empire, the t- positive role of empire, and this idea of. Um, returning to empire through a relatively sort of stale debate about was the empire good or bad, um, then afterwards hijacks this entire debate in 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 the late in the late not in the late kind of 2010s. So I guess the place we're in right now is um, a moment in which once actually empire did it did become a very kind of central part of talking about Britain today, about British history possibly because there is no actual vocabulary like in France to actually say, why do we need to talk about history? Why, why is memory important? This kind of devoir de mémoire that actually gives us a reason to mobilize history in today, like in today's perspective, because of course the state has a responsibility. Then many of these debates, and again, we could talk a lot, uh, quite a long time about it, but I think if anyone's listening and if everyone's still listening, they probably just kind of want to go home um, or just kind of, so, but one of the things that are actually quite interesting about Britain is how the lack of a memory vocabulary actually makes these debates. And I try to look at 
of course, the latest debates with people like um, Nigel Bigar, um, who re- I mean, who who tries to rehabilitate empire through looking at very kind of specific sort of supposed positive roles of empire, but also quite a few people on the left who then kind of reply with just kind of saying it was only it was just bad, and with of course the media um, using this this frame of good and bad as as the only way to talk about empire, but also kind of thinking about um, about all the sort of debates, like for example, um, the Mao Mao sort of trial in in two thousand thirteen, kind of the way different historians like David Anderson, and Caroline Elkins actually tried making people care about Mao Mao, but also through a very sort of clear balance sheet approach. Kind of was it good? Was it bad? And one of the things I actually tried to talk about there is just kind of is is, is to ask. What is the framework that we have when you talk about colonial history beyond was it good or was it bad? Is there is there are there any words? Is there any vocabulary that makes us um, interpret it, care about it for today's audiences? And I think that in Britain, especially through this balance sheet debate that doesn't exist at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... This is, I mean, I, I, we've been going on long, as we noted, but um, I mean, I could, I've got so many more questions, but um, we really need to wrap up. So I've got two questions before I let you go. Um, first, can you suggest two books uh, for the audience? Yes. Um, so the first book um, is actually, so if talking about memory studies and also something that I find extremely, extremely, extremely helpful thinking about memory and also thinking about memory politics is a book by um there was um there was um first written in french it was published i think in 2000 2017 and it was um and it was first published as um a question les politiques de mémoire so what what is memory politics for and it was translated into english as beyond memory and i think that it's a really good way um, uh, Sarah Gansberger, so Sarah Gansberger and Sandrine Lefranc. So they, um, and it's an extremely, extremely, extremely good book. Um, to that really looks at all of these questions of what is memory politics? What is it for? I mean, is it really something that helps us create a more progressive society? This, these kind of ideas of people who incite memory debates, thinking that talking about our imperial history is actually going to fix problems does it really? Um, so this is one book I think everyone should read. Um, and another book um, it is a British historian um, working on France. Um, and it is um, and it is Claire Eldridge and her excellence from Exile to Empire. And yay, Claire. Yes, Claire <laughs> She's is. an old buddy. She's fan- and a fantastic book. A wonderful scholar. It, a wonderful scholar, wonderful book. And it is yeah. also the one thing that I don't need to write about this. She wrote everything so well. <laughs> so it, it, it is again about, um, about um, memory politics and mm-hmm. memory activism. And it is one of the best empirical books you can, you can find about memory politics in France. Fantastic. And finally, what are you working on now? What, what can we hope to see from you next? So, um, if my first book was way too megalomaniac for a first book, um, so so my next book is even is is even worse in terms of in terms of its sort of megalomania. Uh, so, I'm now working on a on on a relatively short book that would that kind of tries to theorize 
um, memory politics and what what I call autocritical memory politics um, in a global way. So global autocritical memory politics after the Second World War. So kind of trying to think about how um, how did this idea of um, of memory as something that is a kind of a critical memory of or kind of an introspection of oneself as a, as a political tool actually emerges in West Germany in the nineteen in the nineteen forties, um, and especially nineteen fifties and sixties, and then kind of travels around the world to create what we consider today memory politics that actually looks at the you can say dark past and kind of dark stains on countries' past and how does that actually translate or does not translate into different demands of racial justice. So it's it's a big one and I'm not even sure I'm, it's going to make sense, but it's interesting to work on. Fantastic. And as you move forward on that, if you want to have a conversation about memory politics in Southeast Asia, particularly uh, uh, Indonesia, Cambodia, and Vietnam, uh, call me. <laughs> I I've, been, I've, been, I've been looking at um, memories of mass violence in, in Cold War museums, and it uh, it's so fascinating. Um, it so, is fascinating. Yeah. It's... Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, I really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you for, thank you for just kind of listening through to to all my rants. This has been a very, very, very long rant. I mean, I'm sure I hope someone actually wants to listen to it at some point. Okay, so this has been a conversation with Dr. Ethel Otum, um, senior lecturer in French studies, uh, University of Westminster School of Humanities, about his book, The Memory of Colonialism in Britain and France, The Sins of Silence published in 2021 as part of the Cambridge Imperial and Post-Colonial Studies series with Paul Grant Macmillan. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.